Hello and welcome back to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. We're here at the start of the new legal term with Tom and Paul to take you through the latest headlines from over the summer. So I want to start with the former Tory MP, Antoinette Sandbach, who's threatened the University of Cambridge with legal action after a third-year PhD history student named her as a descendant of merchants who enslaved his ancestors. Malik Al-Nazir claims that he has been pressed to remove a reference in his work to Antoinette Sandbach. Sandbach has said that she supports and appreciates the importance of Al-Nazir's work, but raised concerns that she was being singled out in an online TED talk given by him. Al-Nazir said the fact that Antoinette Sandbach descends directly from Samuel Sandbach, one of the richest and most prolific slave merchants in Britain in the 18th and 19th century, is a fact that emerged from the research. What is it that we have to kind of draw out from this and the kind of free speech and academic rights as well that um, are in play here? So this is a this is a very strange one, um, and uh, in fact, uh, is yet more proof of the Barbara Streisand uh, effect. Uh, it'd be wrong to call this an obscure uh, thesis uh, that no one had heard of, but at the same time, I think um, uh, Sambach has given it greater uh, oxygen by uh, her actions. Uh, Nevertheless, it is, of course, the central tenet of both academic freedom and freedom of speech, uh, with the emphasis on freedom, that selectivity is a choice, is a choice for uh, the individuals uh, concerned. Um, Therefore, I don't really understand uh, Sambach's complaint, and certainly I can't think how she could Uh, enforce that complaint uh, through legal action uh, should she wish to. I think there's also a degree of hypocrisy here um, at least at uh, an institutional level with uh, the Conservative Party. Um, In recent years we've seen quite a lot of statements from the Conservative Party uh, and its ministers talking about the need to improve free speech in universities. It's all part of the culture wars where universities are these hubs of lefty, woke, free speech deniers um, that no platform, everybody they disagree with. And um, so the Conservatives have been threatening universities with various punitive measures if they don't uh, allow more controversial speakers by and, and speakers who agree with the government um, to speak on their campuses. At the same time, you have a former Conservative member of Parliament, long-standing member of the party, coming out and saying publicly she wants to censor the PhD studies of a university student because they make mention of her. Now, whether or not there is a legitimate right-to-be-forgotten claim here under the law, um, there is definitely... Uh, a, a real tension between those two positions. On the one hand, universities need to have more free speech protection, apparently. On the other hand, uh, not when they say things about us. Um, and I, I just think that that's worth um, remembering. Tom, as is always the case, it's worse than you think when it comes to the Conservatives. Only in the past uh, month or so, we've seen Greta Hands 
uh, enlist the services of Schillings to threaten Carol Vorderman with defamation because Vorderman had suggested that Hams had used the fast track procedure during COVID to benefit some of his friends. Uh, Vorderman uh, backed down and issued an apology, uh, which Hans took great delight in uh, gloating about uh, and insisting that Vorderman go further, uh, simply the retraction to actually apologise to him profusely. Uh, Jolly and Morm subsequently uh, has provided more concrete proof uh, than Vorderman had herself, that actually there may be more to this story than Hans was suggesting. Uh, all of this happening at a time when the government still seems to be pressing ahead uh, with its apparent commitment to investigate slaps and to take the risk of slaps seriously. So on the one hand, you've got the chairman of the Conservatives engaging ex- in, in exactly the kind of slapping activity that the government itself decries. The hands that slap. I don't think that there, for a moment that um, Antonin Senbach is necessarily unreasonable in feeling targeted here, um, in that there will have been links from the time of the slave trade to a number of people in the modern era. And because she has a public profile that no doubt plays a role in deciding to use her as uh, an example to front the research. But it has been said time and time again by the English courts in libel cases, and this wouldn't be a libel case, this would be a right to to be forgotten case, but um, the jurisprudence is not dissimilar when it comes to free speech. It's been said time and again by the courts in in, in libel cases um, that it's okay to name somebody for the purpose of providing colour to a story if that attracts readership to the story, which is on a matter of public interest. Um, See Flood and Times newspapers. So um, I I think this is... She's not in a legally optimal position on the free speech point, let's say that. No, but it's it's not the sort of stiff upper lip mentality that the Tories would have us all engage in. It sounds very snowflakey. Uh, if you ask me. What's this culture wars on our show, Paul? Yeah. I'm just I'm just using the rhetoric uh, in reverse. <laughs> Moving away from politics and onto the police. No. <laughs> the chief executive of Britain's leading Republican movement is seeking a judicial review of the lawfulness of his arrest during the King's coronation as well as damages and and admission of fault from Scotland Yard. Graham Smith was detained on the 6th of May 2023 for 14 hours. This is the first time that a court will have the chance to consider the correct approach to exercise new police powers that were enacted just days before the coronation, under which the police are now able to arrest those suspected of going equipped to lock on. What do we have to say about the chances uh, of Graham Smith here? Well, we said at the time that the arrests were deeply suspicious um, because it didn't appear that there was really reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence was going to be committed, um, even under the new uh, the new the new laws, um, because the the lock on equipment that was supposedly at the heart of all of this. Um, it was not really lock on equipment at all, as I remember. I mean, it was what the 
couple of pieces of sellotape or something. I mean, it was nothing that you would really lock on with. Um, I, I suspect that the legal claim here will ultimately be successful, at least in part. Um, this the, the claimant will get something out of the police. I suspect it may well settle um, because I doubt the police want to really test this in court at uh, this point, and the government probably doesn't want them to either. Um, ultimately, we kind of knew this was going to happen. The, the, the authorities are quite happy to have to pay out a bit in damages um, if that's the price of having a an all-singing, all-dancing coronation where there's no dissent on the TV screens. So um, I'm, I'm not surprised he's bringing the case. I would not be at all surprised if he is at least partially successful. Um, I think that's an inevitability of, of, of what was uh, obviously an unsavoury incident. I don't know. I think sellotape is an entry-level point, isn't it, for locking on uh, and uh, is the, the prior step before carrying bags of orange dust, uh, which ultimately just leads to knife crime. So he may well find that he is unsuccessful. Two women who were arrested while attending a Sarah Everard vigil in London in 2021 have been paid substantial damages and received an apology from the Metropolitan Police. The police force was criticised at the time by women's rights activists for its heavy handling of protesters towards the end of the event. Officers forcibly removed women from the bandstand and some, including one of those apologised to, were pinned down to the ground. Do we think, you know, in light of what Graham Smith's now doing, we're going to see more of these apologies coming through from, from the police before anything changes in the way that they react? Uh, yes, uh, I, 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 I suspect that there will be more apologies um, and that the behaviour won't change substantially. I think that's correct. I mean, at, at the same time, um, lest we forget where where this where the source of this comes from. I mean, this is a very sort of polit- political, a, 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 a politics driven agenda. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, clamping down of dissent at the coronation or, or the outlawing, the apparent outlawing of dissent at the coronation, the um, the the outlawing of protest against the police uh, itself. This is a very right wing narrative uh, that is being driven by this, uh, this government um, who wants to clamp down on protest um in a very serious way i think really we we might have to wait for uh, a change a radical change in government before we see any meaningful sea change in police attitudes on this at what point do would you know consistent apologies like this coming from the police actually start to affect article 11 of the human rights act um and, and the right to protest and almost evidencing that that right has been affected by these new laws that have come into force in recent years? Well, I think that if a court looks at it, the fact that the police have apologised shows the police would concede the point in court um, in respect of any particular incident over which they have apologised. So, for example, take this 
vigil uh, 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 in Clapham. Um, if there were a challenge in court now, the police would undoubtedly simply settle the case. They would accept liability on the, ba- the basis that they've set out in their apology. Um, but the issue, I think, is what evidence is there that the police would behave differently in the future? Uh, what what incentive is them to is is there for them to do so, other than to avoid having to apologise? The police seem to be quite comfortable with apologies at the moment, um, but they're also quite comfortable pinning women to the ground and violently throwing them into the back of a police van. And the two, for some reason, in the minds of decision makers, whether those are operational decision makers on the ground or those who are making strategic decisions about policing, these two things don't seem in their minds to be in tension with one another. Um, And and that I find disturbing. Yeah, and let's not forget the context of the the protest itself. I mean, this is a question of police corruption and uh, whether it's endemic or not, uh, that we have... A number of stories that have appeared since at Sarah Everard of police officers uh, raping uh, women and getting getting away with it, um, or apparently getting away with it. So uh, there's a there's a question here about whether our protest laws are now so strict, too strict, to allow for effective protest against police corruption. And the fact of an apology after the event, after the event of stopping or disturbing a protest in the violent way that we have seen, raises real concern about whether an apology of itself or even compensation of itself is an effective remedy uh, for the wrong done to the Article 11 right itself, which, of course, Strasbourg can consider, you know, can consider the... um, uh, the question of whether there, an effective remedy is uh, is available. Speaking of protests, another uh, issue that's hit the headlines recently that I wanted to raise briefly um, are the protests, such as they are, they seem to be very minimal protests that took place outside of uh, criminal courts where individuals we're going on trial for activities related to climate activism. And you had some individuals outside those courts who were holding placards saying things along the lines of juries have an absolute right to rule according to their conscience. Right. Um, Now this is in the context of several defendants, climate activist defendants in those cases, having been, banned by the trial judge in the most uh, high profile of these um, banned by a trial judge called Silas Reed in London banned from mentioning their climate activism in their defense despite the fact that lawful excuse is a defense to all the charges that they were facing right so they were banned from trying to persuade the jury that trying to save the planet is a lawful excuse now the judge's orders in respect of that, I believe, are currently uh, on appeal. Um, but 
in that context, you had individuals outside the courts with placards saying juries have an absolute right to rule according to their conscience, uh, which it is entirely possible members of the jury would have seen on their way into court. Charges are now, it seems, going to be brought against these individuals for holding those placards um, for attempts to pervert the course of justice. That's the charge that's going to be levelled at them. And I have a real problem with this. I don't just have a moral problem with it. I have a solid legal doctrinal problem with it. You can probably guess what the moral objections are from the tenor of most of the things I say on this podcast, so I won't go into those. But the legal objection um, is a, a, a relatively straightforward one. Um, ever since uh, Bushel's case in the 17th century, juries in English courts have had an absolute right to reach their verdict on any ground that they wish, and it cannot be rejected by the judge. They cannot have their uh, decisions questioned by the judge, their findings of fact questioned by the judge. They are free from judicial interference. The juries are absolutely independent, and that has been embedded firmly in our common law for hundreds of years. Right, the common law, that thing that conservatives uh, adore more than anything else in the legal world, the great British common law. Right? To say, therefore, that mentioning that legal fact in public might pervert the course of justice is utterly absurd because the course of justice does not presuppose any particular decision by the jury. In essence, the complaint from the government, from the prosecuting authorities, would be, by holding this sign, you're encouraging the jury to find someone not guilty. That's fine. Right? That doesn't pervert the course of justice because we don't presume that the jury would ordinarily reach a verdict one way or the other. Right? We're not saying, oh, well, well the course of justice will be perverted if they don't find them guilty. That's essentially what the objection is. Now, the course of justice is perverted if a jury is not permitted to hear evidence that they are legally entitled to hear and which the defendant is legally entitled to put before them. And that, of course, is the matter that's currently going to be, uh, is currently on appeal. And we wait to hear what happens. Now, I think there are loads of things that need to be said about the conduct of these criminal trials in the first place and the judge's order that's led to all this mess. And maybe that's something we come back to in a future podcast when we have more time. But I wanted to, to, to put this into the mix as well, because it's a, a, another important uh, a, another important incident that's, that, that's related to this right to protest. Well, and is yet more proof of this government's attempt to weaponize free speech in all the ways that you've said uh, Tom, uh, something that protects right-wing agendas um, but can't possibly apply to the left-wing. Um, I mean, that the, the very idea that this is in some way an actionable contempt is ludicrous and a sensible judge will give it short shrift. Uh, so I don't see this going anywhere. But it does highlight, again, the problem of having the Attorney General as... Uh, a government-appointed position. And in previous years, we've had the utterly dreadful Sawala Braverman 
as our Attorney General, who couldn't Attorney General her way out of a paper bag, and yet is somehow the, what is she, Home Secretary. This position needs to be taken out of the political realm in exactly the way that the Lord Chancellor's position was. It needs to be independent and demonstrably independent. It needs to return to the civil service. While we're on the topic of criminal trials, the police have started an investigation into a number of allegations of non-recent sexual offences against Russell Brand, following media reports that four women have accused the actor and comedian of sexual assault. Um, There's been a a statement from the Solicitor General uh, that's warned publishers not to write about the Russell Brand issue. Uh, Is Solicitor General right in saying that as we're at this investigation stage? Um, Not legally speaking, no. This is premature. Um, The Contempt of Court Act 1981 creates a criminal offence of strict liability contempt of court for anybody who uh, publishes a statement that is likely to create a substantial risk of serious prejudice, um, or which creates a substantial risk of serious prejudice to uh, active legal proceedings, whether civil or criminal. Uh, But there are no active legal proceedings here yet uh, that we are aware of. Uh, Russell Brand has, to the best of uh, all public knowledge, not been arrested or charged. Uh, No warrant has been issued for his arrest. And therefore, there are no active criminal proceedings against him that could be prejudiced. Um, If, by some mischance, uh, proceedings have become active against Russell Brand, but nobody knows about it, um, then there would be a defence. Uh, where the publisher had no reasonable uh, reason to uh, believe that the proceedings were active. So, um, no, this this seems to be a bit of an overreach. And um, it's an issue, actually, that, I I mean, given we've got a lot to cover today, I don't think we should spend too much time on, but which, uh, helpfully enough, uh, the good folks over at Novara Media uh, covered on one of their Novara Live episodes uh, just uh, in the last week. Um, so you, know, you can always hop over there and hear some journalists who are impressively up to date and uh, well informed about their contempt of court doctrine um, delving into this particular issue. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is if he's trying to suggest that uh, common law contempt applies in these circumstances, that proceedings are imminent. Um, but even that's not well. It's not. Uh, that, that it's not likely because common law contempt has to be intentional. It has to be an intention yeah. to disrupt forthcoming yeah. legal proceedings. And is it likely that you could show a journalistic report of what happened was had been written intentionally to try to disrupt the proceedings? Chances are, most of these journalistic reports exist. Uh, to, to try to give people an opportunity to um, to tell their own story, to encourage more victims to come forward um, and to, yeah. to, to ensure that legal proceedings happen, not that they are prevented from happening. So um, mm. I think it's unlikely. I agree with you. That is the, the only way in which you could think that a person who actually understood the law on this might have been thinking before making that statement. Um, but I don't think it's viable. 
Um, and so I'm at a loss, rather, to explain why the Solicitor General um, thinks that this is a legally necessary warning. Um, perhaps they don't. I don't know. But I did want to talk about another issue related to the uh, Russell Brand allegations. And this goes to the um, expose, the documentary that was aired on Channel 4's Dispatches program that started the ball rolling on all of this. Now, this was aired on Channel 4. It was the result of investigation by The Times, The Sunday Times and Channel 4 that had lasted several years um, as they'd been delving into these allegations. And it was broadcast. It was about a 90-minute long program. I... And I sat through most of it in different stages, actually, because I first I didn't notice it was on, and then I caught the last 20 minutes, and I went back and I watched other bits of it um, subsequently. Now, at once, I don't want to talk about the allegations themselves. Uh, plenty of other people will be talking about those, and it's it's not you know, primarily a media law issue. What is a media law issue is the way that the documentary portrays other people. In, in in the part of the show that I watched the f- first night it was on, I was rather shocked to see um, a, a clip from a, a mid-2000s uh, episode of Russell Brand's then chat show um, featuring an individual that I recognised, a singer by the name of Narina Palo, um, who incidentally is a, an absolutely phenomenal singer. And if you don't know her work, go check it out. Uh, will bring you much joy. Um, it was a short clip as part of a montage, um, a short montage that was being used to kind of show Russell Brand behaving in a lascivious, misogynistic fashion towards women um, and was showing various things that he'd said that were somewhat sexualized on his chat show when he had female guests. And um, as I say, one of these people featured in a clip that lasted maybe five, ten seconds, not very long, um, uh, was was this singer, Narina Palo. She has subsequently written publicly on a a, a substack of hers um, that she was not aware that she was going to be featured in the expose in this fashion. First, she became aware of it was when friends and family who were watching it started texting her and saying, do you know you're in this? Um, and she said she was, she was shocked and disturbed by it. Um, and rather angry that she had not been consulted, that her consent to use that clip and to feature her had not been sought. Um, now there's no direct suggestion no explicit suggestion that Narina Palo um, might be a victim of Russell Brand um, in the documentary itself. And uh, I should add avoidance of doubt that Narina has clarified in what she has written uh, on her Substack that as soon as filming was over, she got out of the studio, partly because she thought Brand was rather weird. Um, but as a viewer my immediate reaction to seeing that montage was to assume it was possible that Brand had behaved badly towards these women, that there was an implicit suggestion that maybe the people featured in this montage, though they haven't come forward and haven't spoken, might be victims. 
And that's enhanced because you assume as a viewer that people have consented to appear in the documentary. And so that the clips, oh, well, they must have been contacted and people must have said yes to having these clips used. Um, now, legally, this becomes an issue because it's a privacy issue um, in terms of making a potential allegation about victimhood, about a person. And there's also a, a, a libel issue. We know from the mid 20th century of Yusupov and uh, Metro Golden Mayor, um, which is a, a case that was brought by uh, an individual who was portrayed in a film. And in the film, she, her character was portrayed as having been, uh, her real life character was portrayed as having been raped by Rasputin, right? So we know that as a matter of English law, it has been held that alleging that a person is the victim of serious sexual violence can actually defame that person, the victim. Um, that hasn't been tested again since the mid-20th century. It might lead to a different result today, but let's assume that the doctrine still stands. If so, then that dispatches program is in a potentially tricky situation um, because it could well be that an ordinary reasonable viewer reaches the conclusion that everyone featured in the show um, is a victim or is possibly a victim of sexual violence at Brand's hands. Um, and I, I think it's uh, it's certainly odd if, as Narina has said, permission was not sought, that no contact was made with uh, her or any of the other people that featured in montages in the programme um, prior to uh, their being released. And I do wonder what exactly the programme makers uh, were thinking at the time. Just a couple more things that I want to mention in today's episode. First, that the nine people who were suing the Labour Party after they were named as complainants in a leaked report over anti-Semitism have dropped their case. The nine were suing Labour for failure to protect their data and invasion of privacy after they were identified as having made complaints about anti-Semitism in an 860-page document that claimed factional hostility towards Jeremy Corbyn contributed to the party's ineffective handling of such complaints. The discontinuation of the case was revealed in documents lodged in at the High Court this week. Uh, it's unclear if there was an out-of-court settlement, um, so there's not a huge amount that we can really say on it, other than just to update listeners that that case is no longer going forward. The other update is that Hans Niemann has settled his defamation case against chess.com. So we're not going to have any more uh, information coming out of that side either from across the pond. Yes, we're not quite sure um, exactly what the terms of the settlement are, other than that Hans Niemann has returned to playing chess on chess.com and competing in their online tournaments. Um, so clearly some sort of accommodation has been reached. I'd be surprised if a large amount of damages had been had been. Uh, agreed um, but he's back playing um, and that brings the saga to an end at least for now all right thank you very much tom and paul for your excellent insights thank you colette as ever follow us on social media at media law podcast and we will be back in the new term with more newscasts in the next few weeks thanks very much bye <laughs>